You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 28th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up, unprecedented scenes across China as demonstrators protesting against COVID lockdowns call for Xi Jinping to step down. We'll have the latest. Then Russia weaponizes winter as millions remain without power in Ukraine. And the Kremlin is also freezing out the LGBT community with punitive new laws set to come into effect. Plus, what's worse than one very stable genius in the White House? When Trump started basically screaming at me at the table telling me I was going to lose, I mean, has that ever worked for anyone in history? Two very stable geniuses, though Trump has apparently turned down Kanye West's offer to be his running mate, Ye is undeterred and says he'll stand in 2024. Also ahead, two former NATO Supreme Commanders discuss the future of the military alliance. This is all bigger than Ukraine. As long as we capitulate and reward bad behavior like we did in 08, we will see more of this in our future. And whether it's the butler in the library with the lead piping or the hotel guest with a pineapple knife in a Hawaiian resort, whodunits continue to be very popular entertainment. But can London's longest-running murder mystery make it on Broadway? That's all in store here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. China is reporting a record number of new COVID infections after a weekend of anti-lockdown protests across the country. We'll have more on that shortly. Australia's government will move a motion of censure against former Liberal Prime Minister Scott Morrison. And South Korea's government plans to meet the country's striking truckers' union for the first time since a nationwide walkout began. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, we begin in China. There is growing anger in the country, sparking protests on the street as citizens rebel against the zero Covid policy, which has kept millions locked down. I'm joined from Beijing by Jonathan Cheng, the China bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal, to have a comprehensive look at just what that policy is, how people are reacting and what measures the authorities are taking. Jonathan, many thanks for joining us. We have seen unprecedented protests on the streets with demands that Xi Jinping stand down. Can you tell us what's been happening since a deadly fire broke out in the far west of the country? Sure. Yeah, no, it has been extraordinary indeed. Um, you're right that there was this fire in Urumqi. This is the capital of the Xinjiang region in the far uh, northwest of China. Um, obviously, Xinjiang has been in the news for the last few years, um, largely because of um, Beijing's treatment of the Uyghur minority there. But um, but there, um, it, it, it's not directly related to that per se, but there was a fire in uh a residential tower there that, that killed 10 people. And even though the authorities have denied it, uh, most people who have uh, been following that news within China have come to the conclusion that um, the cause of the deaths was effectively because this building was under lockdown and people were trapped in this building and couldn't escape um, because of, of 
strict COVID rules that remain in place um, almost three years after the initial outbreak. So tell us what's happened now, particularly over this weekend, because we have seen these shouts for, for Xi to go, for down with the Communist Party and all the rest of it. It seems to be pretty widespread. It is, and that's what makes this unusual. I mean, you see occasionally um, protests in China. Obviously, this is not a country where uh, public uh, demonstrations are encouraged. In fact, quite to the contrary, they're, 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 they're very rapidly suppressed and, um, and and punished typically. But in this case, um, what you're seeing is this, this really rare, um, I, I don't know if I'd call it spontaneous. It, it's certainly not coordinated in the sense that there's no single mastermind here. But I think many people in China, um, having basically been subjected to these controls now for for three years, we're about to enter the fourth year of COVID here, have, have kind of concluded that they've had enough. And, um, you know, there were a couple of signs that um, that people had seized on to look for some hope that perhaps there was going to be an easing of these measures. Um, and um, I think with each, uh, you know, little glimmer of hope that came, the Communist Party came out and basically said, no, we're going to stick to this. Persistence is victory. And as we head into the winter, um, you see cases rising and you see uh, these rules not get any lighter, um, if anything. It, it, it's the same old rules. And I think people are, um, they've just had enough. And, and so, you know, the Arumchi fire, I think, was, was, was a catalyzing moment. But I think what it really did, of course, was it just sort of was an excuse almost for everyone to, to, to stand up and, and express themselves. And how have the authorities reacted you know, so far, um, there hasn't been um, a strong sort of iron-fisted response yet. Uh, key word is yet. We don't know whether we're, we're going to get one later. Um, we see, you know, a lot of what uh, typically happens, which is that all of this spreads online. And this is this is what I mean when I say it wasn't centrally coordinated, but, but people are inspired and drawing inspiration from other videos and footage that they see from other cities. And so you have Beijing, Shanghai, Chengdu, Zhengzhou, Guangzhou, uh, Wuhan. You have all these big Chinese cities all sort of at once um, kind of um, exploding with with, with these all, it's very similar kinds of protests. And so um, all of that is being censored. And that's, that's, that's pretty standard in China. And of course, the internet controls here are quite strong. And, uh, and there it's a matter of, of cat and mouse where people are posting things and, and the censors are trying to take them down, but they can't do it immediately. And how serious is this for Xi Jinping? Could this, could this damage his, his career? Well, you know, those sort of bigger, broader questions, I think, are ones that people almost don't dare to ask right now because we've seen these moments where it looked like um, a similar dynamic was at play. Um, you just go back to the beginning of COVID, early 2020 and Wuhan being locked down for several months and, and people starting to wonder whether this would be where Xi Jinping met his match. And and, and I think we can say now uh, pretty safely a few years later that that particular moment was not um, the, that moment. But of course, COVID is still with us, um, very much so in China. And I think there, are, there, there's a sense here that people don't want to get ahead of themselves or, or think about what this all might mean. I think it's enough to sort of have people come out and say what they're saying, which is already um, quite bold and and um, 
you know, is pushing the envelope. Mm. I mean, do you think that this will lead to the end of lockdown or indeed the end of the Communist Party, both of which are being demanded by protesters? And if if she gives way on this, on, on lockdown, where does it stop? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, um, I think I think there's there's there must be a faction, and, and of course, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is not um, a transparent uh, ruling party that those of us on the outside can um, watch debates unfold. Um, we we do report things that we hear based on our sources, um, but we don't have a great deal of transparency. So one imagines that there is a hard line um, faction that says we cannot yield if we yield. Um, Things are not going to go well for us. But I can also imagine that there are those who look at the public anger that is out there, and it really reaches into the lives of every single person. I mean, unlike most political issues, for example, the Uyghurs or other things, this is this is something that, that every single person in China is confronting on a near-daily basis. And so um, whether or not this, 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 this leads to a, you know some sort of a concession, I, I really don't know. I think if we look at... Hong Kong, where there were protests there and questions about whether or not the Communist Party would offer any concessions. I I think we saw there that the answer was very clearly no, that any yielding was seen as a sign of potential uh, weakness. Mm. Uh, Jonathan, is there a possibility that this has sanction from the top, from those within the CCP who would like Xi gone? Well, now you're getting into... um, you know, um, more speculative territory. I have not seen uh, any reporting out there that, you know, credibly shows that this is happening. I, I suppose that, uh, you know, if one thinks about it, it, it's definitely possible. But but I can't tell you um, that that's happening. And I haven't seen anyone who has credibly come, come forward with any similar sort of reporting on that. Mm. Are the protests uh, continuing now? Well, um Right now, it's uh, three in the afternoon here in Beijing, and what we've found is that these uh, demonstrations, for whatever reason, tend to happen in the evenings. That's what's happened the last few, um, the last few days, and and whether it happens again tonight, I think it's probably a pretty safe bet that we'll see something happening. Um, but but it's very hard to know because there isn't somebody, you know, calling the shots here or someone um, even publicly saying, "Let's all gather at." such and such a place at such and such a time, at least not in an open public way. So, um, you know, and, and that's really the big question, I think, for these demonstrations is whether or not they have staying power. Certainly the grievances are very deep and um, people certainly feel very strongly about this. But we've also seen situations where protests can sustain themselves for some time, but, um, but that they can, through a combination of just you know, running its natural course as well as perhaps concessions, perhaps um, a crackdown, either a very hard one or, or something more subtle, you know, can can take the wind out of the sails of these things. So I think we still need to sort of see what's going to happen. It's been a few days now. Um, and, and, and you know, if it just ends up being a few days, I think um, the Communist Party would sigh a, a deep sigh of relief. Um, but But I suspect it won't be just a few days. Uh, and just finally, there are reports of a, a journalist, a, an international journalist being arrested and beaten. Uh, as a reporter yourself there, how safe do you feel uh, working on this story? Well, I, I don't know the, I don't know the, 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 the circumstances of what happened in his case. Um, 
I do know him, and uh, but but I haven't had a chance to 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 hear from him. But uh, but I do think that anytime you're in any demonstration, almost in any country, um, there's going to be some risk. Now the risks in China are a little bit different. Um, you're not so concerned about um, I don't know. Uh, people carrying weapons or anything like that. What you fear is um, the authorities and whether or not there's going to be any sort of um, a hard crackdown. And, you know, so far the signs uh, from last night um, are that the police actions have tended towards uh, the de-escalatory side. It doesn't seem like they are wanting to um, take a very firm stance. I think they recognize that doing so may be counterproductive, but we also recognize that that calculation may change. And um, no doubt there are discussions happening um, throughout the government right now to figure out what to do um, tonight and the following night and the night after that. And that response can change. And if that response turns towards one that is more confrontational, more, uh, you know, uncompromising, then yes, I do think that that would be a real concern. But for the time being, um, it, it looks like it's, it's remained mostly, mostly um, peaceful with, with, with a couple of very notable exceptions. Jonathan Cheng, thank you very much indeed. And this, of course, is a story we're going to be watching very, very closely indeed. This is The Globalist. Ukraine's energy infrastructure is slowly being repaired after being attacked by Russian missiles, though millions are still without power. I'm joined by Victoria Vishnivska of the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission in Kyiv and Dr Jenny Mathers, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at Aberystwyth University. Victoria, thanks very much for coming on the show. What's the latest on the electricity and water situation? Good morning. Um, well, Kyiv is still recovering from the latest attack, and I highly doubt we are going to be able to recover before the next one. Um, as of now, we are slowly moving towards regular shortages of electricity, um, meaning only scheduled blackouts, so to speak. Um, the water was back the day after the attack. Um, the biggest issue for us, I would say, is uh, right now is the internet and mobile connection, because uh, I, for example, live in, in an area where the mobile network is a huge problem. And usually when we do not have electricity, it almost automatically means that um, we do not have any internet at all. Uh, now, yesterday and today, um, as uh, today as well, we do have electricity, but a huge part of the city, for some reason, is experiencing tremendous issues with uh, internet. It just does not work, and because because of that, you cannot reach outside world. You cannot like text your friends. Cannot pay anywhere cashless. Cannot use ATM to get cash. Cannot use Uber to go somewhere. You're basically digitally isolated. And um, if you've ever been to Ukraine in the last like five years, I would say, it probably noticed that we are extremely digital in our daily lives. And um, that's such a problem as lack of any type of internet uh, is, is, is pretty big for us and affects the day a lot. But overall, people are standing tired. Uh, people are standing firm, tired, but firm. So we'll endure. Have there been further attacks over the weekend? Um, there's been a lot of attacks on the front line. Um, daily, I would say that they are daily shelling um, with MLRS some some of the regions that are close to uh, to the front line, especially Kherson. Um, it's been quite uh, tremendously shelled, 
uh, in the last few days so people evacuate from this area uh, as much as, as as fast as they can and as much as they can um basically all all the eyes right now on Kherson uh, because uh, Russians are not really merciful here uh, which was expected how are people preparing for winter well there are two different levels how people prepare there is a governmental level and the latest after the latest attacks um the government announced that they're opening uh, more than 4000 of so-called invincibility points um there you can change charge your phone use the internet eat drink some hot tea or coffee spend the night even um so these points operate in all of the regions so people know where to go in case of emergency and there is also the individual level um, people also prepare themselves for the winter uh, and any possible outcomes. Uh, for example, uh, if you could see the Ukrainian analog of um, Amazon, um, it, it is booming right now on so-called survival kits and any necessities possible, like starting from lightning on batteries and ending with small portable um, stoves on gas. Um, I'd say p- people have some sort of a mental algorithm of what to do to ensure they are ready f- to face the winter. And this uh, mental algorithm is individual for every single person. Uh, so uh, you can literally see that people are ready no matter what government offers them. Like they're trying to be, be prepared. So if the government for some reason is not able to like offer them uh, as much of assistance as possible, they can face the winter themselves. And are people thinking about leaving or indeed already crossing borders? And might this be part of a, a Russian plan to, to flood European centres with more refugees? It, it is definitely a Russian plan. However, judging by the situation in Kiev, I just saw like fresh statistics on um, the population that is living in Kiev right now. So before war, we had 3.7 millions of people here in Kiev. Right now, we have 3 million of people still standing in Kiev and um, four for 400,000 more of the internal, internally displaced people. So uh, I would say that this um, attempt to create a migration crisis of some sort of coming from Russian, uh, from Russians um, is a good attempt. However, it will not work uh, because people, despite the winter, they still want to stay where they are. They still want to go back home. Um, yeah, if, if they consider spending um, some time in the winter, like somewhere in a European country, um, most probably they will return home because they're homesick. Mm. Now, in Russia, the parliament has passed the third and final reading of a law banning LGBT propaganda. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Jenny Mathers now. Jenny, this is fairly vague. What does it cover? Well, it covers most everything. I mean, it's a follow-up to a law that was passed back in 2013, which banned propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations, as it was called, um, aimed at children. And so this, the idea here was that, uh, you know, the, the family and traditional values should be preserved and children should be protected. Uh, but now the, the law has been extended, really, to ban any kind of mention of any kind of LGBT uh, people or, you know, even education or, or fairly neutral information is going to be banned on the internet, in films, in books, in advertising, uh, basically just about anywhere. Why? Why is Russia doing this? 
Well, this is part of a, of a longer term, uh, wider attempt by, by Putin and his regime to um, kind of position Russia as the defender of traditional social values and family values, not only as a way of, of kind of trying to cement the population in a certain direction, but also as an international appeal towards, you know, those parts of the world where uh, this kind of a message resonates. And it's also a way of, of placing Russia in sharp contrast to the way that, that Putin and others in the leadership are presenting Ukraine and Europe and the West as being uh, the sort of home of, of um, uh, you know, the sort of behavior that's degenerate um, and and you know, not in keeping with traditional family values. So it's a it's part of a bigger set of sort of messaging and, and positioning that that Putin has been doing for Russia. So really, in a way, they're using homosexuality to justify the attack on on Ukraine. It is in part being being done that way. So part of the the uh, the logic here of the, the justification of the excuse is that uh, in Ukraine there's a sort of a a dangerous uh, way of of behaving and a dangerous uh, way of living, uh, and you know Russia needs to prevent that from infesting uh, and infecting the Russian people, and needs to kind of you know push back on it, uh, and therefore to defend you know traditional values, and this is one way of doing it. And of course, this new law in addition to banning any sort of LGBT uh, positive or, or neutral mentions, also bans positive uh, mentions of childless families. So it's really expanding this definition of what traditional values might be and making it um, very vague so that the, the authorities can implement it pretty much as they choose. Victoria, is there a large LGBT movement in Ukraine? Oh, yes, of course. Actually, um, we have a key of pride uh, which is a very well-known organization here in Ukraine that organizes prides. Um, I've been to a number of them uh, of those uh, throughout years, and uh, they are very visible, especially in Kiev. Um, they're very visible also on the battlefield. We have a lot of representatives of the LGBT community uh, fighting on the front lines uh, with unicorn patches, with uh, their personal flags. Uh, together with the Ukrainian ones. So uh, they, they're visible. Plus, uh, we also see that people care about their rights in terms of like um, like civil rights, um, um, a right to have some sort of a civic partnership in times of war, because it, it is important if you die, you want your uh, your loved one to bury you, to, to do whatever you want with your body. And this is essential part of um of, of your own um, of your own freedom of your of your own choice. So uh, because of that, people actually rallied to some extent and organized a petition um, uh, for for the president to consider uh, civic partnerships. Uh, president considered it. So like right right now, our cabinet of ministers is actually doing some work on um, on making that issue more visible. Victoria, thank you. That's Victoria Vishnuska. And we also heard from Dr. Jenny Mathers. Still to come on the programme, the world's longest-running play, The Mousetrap, is set to open on Broadway. I've been coming here for as long as I can remember. Although the faces seem to change, the mystery remains, and everyone is a suspect. We'll get the latest with theatre critic Matt Wolfe. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, 
we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. NATO was once declared brain-dead by French President Emmanuel Macron, but the military alliance has since been rejuvenated by Russia's war in Ukraine. Our next guests understand all too well what it takes to command NATO forces. General Philip Breedlove of the US Air Force served as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2013 to 2016, and General Sir Richard Sheriff of the British Army served as NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander from 2011 to 2014. Earlier, they sat down with Monocle's Andrew Muller to discuss the future of the alliance. Andrew began by asking General Sheriff if there's ever conflict between NATO military leaders and the civilian government they serve. There's almost certainly going to be different perspectives mm-hmm. and you will find, you know, the history is full of very good examples that there's differences of opinion which if managed properly and with the right individuals become creative. I mean, the obvious example, I suppose, is Alan Brook and Churchill. But I think, you know, it's very easy for the military to be black and white and the military will tend to be black and white and paint a picture about a particular requirement. But at the end of the day, quite rightly, it is for the democratically elected leadership to make the political judgments based on military recommendations. Where I think things can go wrong is if the military start to think like politicians. And my view is that military leadership is about understanding the military consequences of political judgment and being able to lay out the pros and cons to allow politicians to make the political calls, albeit based on military recommendations. Philip. I just love the way Richard said that. It's <laughs> I would add a couple of things. And that is the next thing that is dangerous is when military men and women fail to give their best military advice because they're worried about the political ramifications of that military advice. Our job, in my words, is to give our boss the best military advice we can, no matter whether we think they're going to like it or not. We're to advise them on what our expertise is and what our expertise would suggest, not on what we think is going to play well on the front page of the Washington Post. There is just one more question uh, I did want to ask you as an American, Philip, about the civil-military relationship, especially where it pertains to NATO, because, of course, in reasonably recent memory, the United States has had a president who was not noticeably keen on NATO or went away out of his way to disparage it and undermine it and who might yet again be president. Is NATO something that could potentially be threatened by just one unusual leader deciding to bring the whole thing down? Or do you think it is more solid than that? I just remind people that the American government was designed with three different branches, of course, judiciary, legislative, and executive. And they all have 
counterbalancing contributions to leading our country. Certainly, one person at the very top can be very impactful, but that one person at the top cannot, in my opinion, totally run off with what's going on. The sad news is that in NATO, as others will say, a lot is done on relationships and Mm -hmm. reputations, and that's where damage could be made. Richard, what do you think? If in extremis, the United States, if not necessarily withdrawing from the alliance entirely, but noticeably declining to pick up its usual end of it, could NATO survive that in the long term? I don't think NATO could. I think America remains the foundation stone of NATO and very much the leadership of the alliance. And also, of course, it translates into real strategic capability. And even if, say the sake of argument, Germany became the defence superpower of Europe, because of the advantages of scale that you get from one single superpower investing in capabilities like strategic airlift or other enablers, that makes American capability fundamental to the alliance. Try to do that across the board with different nations, smaller nations, would be very difficult. So I think without America, NATO would become a shadow of itself, and I don't think the alliance would survive in its present form. I did want to ask a slightly more upbeat and optimistic question about the future of NATO. I'll ask you first, Richard, the NATO summit in Madrid this year, of course, we saw the leaders for the first time attending of Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, China incorporated in NATO's strategic concept for the first time. Is there any reason, absent the difficulty of, I guess, ordering new stationery to accommodate a new acronym, why NATO could not be expanded to the Pacific? I think the task of NATO is very clear to protect the land borders, the airspace and the sea lines of communication of the transatlantic region and the nations who sign up to it. I think if you go broader than that, you're into a different form of alliance. So the Mm. beauty of NATO is that that task is very straightforward, very simple and underpinned by, again, that very simple doctrine of collective defense, Article 5. Where I think NATO certainly should can and probably must expand is into the post-Soviet space. Those post-Soviet republics, like Ukraine, like Moldova, like Georgia, given where this thing with Russia is likely to go and the long-term challenge of being faced with deterring and containing an angry, probably defeated, vengeful Russia, probably led by a leader still determined to re-establish a Russian empire, probably still determined to swallow up Ukraine. NATO has to think very carefully, long and hard, about bringing certainly Ukraine in and probably Georgia and Moldova in as well. Philip, as you look ahead to the coming months, although it would be nicer to think of it in terms of weeks, but what strike you as the military hazards that NATO needs to watch for um, in the next phase of this conflict? I think the first and most simple is that this is all bigger than Ukraine. If you remember the two documents that Mr. Putin sort of handed to the United States, but he really gave it to the West about 12 days before this war, and he said, sign these or there will be other means. We know now what he meant by that. And in those documents, we see that, yes, we are now fighting and helping Ukraine to manage this invasion, but this is just step one for Russia. They are really about reorganizing the defense architecture of Europe and reestablishing that sort of 
Warsaw Pact Soviet Union field with border nations. Bad paraphrasing, but weapons out, less NATO and no America in these border states and things. And so we need to realize that Mr. Putin is about a bigger problem. And that is going to be something that will continue. As long as we capitulate and reward bad behavior like we did in 08 and in 14, and if we do it again now in 22, we will see more of this in our future. And so I believe that NATO and the West, the larger West, need to look at diffusing this situation in a more permanent way now. That was uh, General Philip Breedlove and General Sir Richard Sheriff speaking to Andrew Muller on the Foreign Desk. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. As we've been hearing in the programme, China is reporting record numbers of new COVID infections after a weekend of anti-lockdown protests across the country. The unrest has spread to the biggest cities, with many calling the demonstrations unprecedented since President Xi Jinping assumed power a decade ago. Meanwhile, videos on social media appear to show Chinese police in Shanghai assaulting and arresting a journalist for filming the protests. Australia's Labour government will move a motion of censure against former Liberal Prime Minister Scott Morrison this week. It comes after an inquiry found his secret appointment to multiple ministries undermined trust in government. Mr Morrison had accumulated five ministerial roles during the COVID-19 pandemic. And South Korea's government plans to meet the country's striking truckers' union for talks for the first time since a nationwide walkout began five days ago. The Transport Ministry has elevated its warning of cargo transport disruption due to the strike to serious, as supplies of cement and fuel for gas stations are running short. It's estimated the strike is costing the government more than $220 million a day. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, having a narcissistic, fame-hungry and mentally unhinged person in the White House is not generally thought to be a great idea. It would appear that even Donald Trump agrees. When Trump started basically screaming at me at the table telling me I was going to lose, I mean, has that ever worked for anyone in history? That's Kanye West describing Trump's reaction to being invited to be the rap star's running mate in 2024. Well, Kanye made the announcement that he's throwing his hat into the presidential race on Twitter in a clip that's been viewed more than five and a half million times. I'm joined now by Scott Lucas, who's adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute University College, Dublin. Scott, uh, thanks for joining us. For those not aware of the man who now just calls himself Yay, could you tell us a bit more about him? Apparently, he used to sing a bit, Georgina, (laughs) uh, as Kanye West. Uh, Earlier this century, he was a a well-acclaimed artist. highly regarded not only in the U.S., but across the world. Um, I'm a bit of an old guy, but even I liked his music. But starting maybe over a decade ago, his behavior in public grew more and more eccentric. There was sort of a moment that a lot of folks remember, which is when he uh, tried to throw shade on Taylor Swift, who's quite famous herself now, more than a decade ago at a music awards ceremony, uh, interrupting her and uh, saying, now I'm going to tell you what's happening. And he's continued to do so on social media. Uh, And he's continued to do so with his public appearances, including during the Trump years, 
at the White House telling the president we should have hydrogen plant, uh, propelled airplanes. Um, at the same time, he married Kim Kardashian, which led to more reality TV, which means that the music is sort of faded and the spectacle and the circus and his run for president, including in 2016, have taken over from any value that he actually had. So what happened when he visited Trump at Mar-a-Lago last week? Uh, we, one thing, Georgina, I want to know is it wasn't just Kanye. Um, and in fact, this is significant because Kanye uh, was uh, taken off Twitter for a while uh, before Elon Musk took over because of his anti-Semitic remarks. And Nick Fuentes, who is a very extreme right winger, some would say a white supremacist, was also at that dinner. So, you know, there wasn't much in terms of detail that was said. Trump tried to play down the dinner after the controversy emerged. But just the signs that Kanye, having made these remarks about Jewish people that were so inflammatory, would be there not only with Trump, who has made his own derogatory comments, but also Nick Fuentes, um, that, that was a sign that this ongoing spectacle which links celebrity politics and right-wing extremism and bigotry, um, it was sort of coming together in this type of cocktail that Kanye's fueling even further by talking about, you know, what might happen in 2024. And I mean, if we were to take his presidential bid seriously for a moment, what would his platform be? Oh, his last platform was, uh, and I won't use the full remark, but, but it was bat crazy. Um, he just simply was talking, you know, on one hand, there are sentiments, which I think we could, you know, applaud, which is, you know, to elevate people out of poverty, to make social progress. But, but his ideas in terms of energy with these fantastic ideas, such as these hydrogen planned airplanes, uh, these ideas in, in terms of uh, an America with a spiritual revival, which draws more from, uh, his unique views on his own enlightenment rather than any sense of American society, there's no substance there, mm. Georgina. Uh, there's there's nothing there to really take America forward in the serious issues that it has right now. I wonder how this demonstrates the power of having global brand recognition. I mean, do you think that voters are more inclined to support somebody that's prominent in popular culture? I'm thinking here, well, of Trump, I suppose, but another example might be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, there have been celebrities who have transitioned to politics and I think done pretty good jobs. Um, I'll leave aside comment on Ronald Reagan back in the 1980s, who used to be an actor. Um, I've got mixed feelings about him, but Schwarzenegger, um, you know, who ran what would now be seen as a moderate Republican in the Trump years, it was seen as a pretty effective governor of California. But overall, Georgina, rather than can a celebrity become president again, can a celebrity become governor of a large state, it's this damaging effect that celebrity is having on politics, uh, not only on the US, but in the UK, if you think about Matt Hancock. Uh, the fact is, is that rather than talk about, say, housing or education or healthcare, gun control, abortion, immigration, uh, the war in Ukraine, we wind up talking about these personalities and in the case of Trump, the ultimate celebrity politician, he turned what should be dialogue and discussion into this red meat, you know, Twitter line attack politics. Now, there are some celebrities who don't attack, and that should be recognized. But I think we need to get away from the idea that we're going to take our latest pop star, or our latest wannabe businessman, and make them the next uh, president of the U.S. A quick yes or no to this. Does Ye have a reasonable chance of being elected? 
No. Scott Lucas. I can leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. up to 7.40 here in London. That's 8.40 in Zurich. And we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Terry Stiastany, political journalist and author. Good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. Uh, now, all of the UK front pages, indeed all of the international front pages, are uh, almost uh, all of them leading on China. And lots of great images of the protests, which is which is really very, very powerful to see those those images, as well as the videos that, that a lot of the websites are carrying. Yes. I mean, looking at, I've got here the Times, the Guardian, and uh, the Financial Times, and in particular, um, both uh, the Times and, and the FT have slightly different pictures, but they're both of protesters, one in Shanghai holding up these blank sheets of paper that have become you know, the symbol of, of censorship and, and the symbol of, of protest in China. Uh, again, another picture here in the Times, uh, again from Shanghai, a big crowd of people all in their face masks and all holding up uh, the, sheets of, the sheets of paper. Uh, and, and The Guardian has a slightly different picture, which is uh, protesters in Beijing, where it looks rather colder. They're all wrapped up against the cold, holding uh, candles, and as well the the blank sheets of paper. Um, but you know, quite a, a lot of coverage, as you would expect on this. Uh, though the Guardian, of course, is is pointing out that if you are reading uh, the press in China, you would not obviously get uh, the same level of coverage, and that the Chinese press, in particular, has been sort of pointing out that it's really important to keep uh, the COVID restrictions as they are and that perhaps they could be slightly slightly adjusted but really um, saying that uh, this is, you know, they're taking the line, the government line, that this is essential and China is facing a much tougher battle against the virus. And in terms of analysis, what are the experts saying about this affecting Xi and his long-term future? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, again, looking here in the Times is uh, saying lockdown frustration and it's got a picture of, of a, the police confronting a protester. But they have an interesting analysis here from uh, Kerry Brown, who's a professor of Chinese studies at King's College in London and saying that although these protests, this article argues, are serious because they link different social, economic, ethnic and regional groups around a common grievance. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of people protesting and there's a map here showing you all around the country how far these uh, protests have spread, but also saying that really, you know, the reality of the situation in China is that you know, the government may make some pragmatic changes, but we as the article says we're some way from a truly existential threat to Xi and really saying, emphasising, of course, how much control the Chinese Communist Party still has and how difficult it could be for protesters to actually do anything to get the government to, to acknowledge those protests. On to Italy now and this horrific landslide that's killed people and has been blamed on illegal building. Yes, I think this is a, a really interesting story. So obviously a, a devastating 
devastating kind of mudslide in Ischia, just off off uh, the coast near near Naples. Um, but La Repubblica and other papers in Italy are really saying how angry people are about this uh, because they're saying that uh, this article in La Repubblica suggests that one building in two on the island was built without proper planning permission, um, and that is just going on the figures that people have sort of retrospectively applied to have their building given permission. And they are saying that this kind of overbuilding on this obviously a very popular tourist island has been going on for decades. And they're saying that because these buildings have been built unsafely and also they've got rid of the trees and all the kind of support for, you know, the nature around it, that this has just made the situation far, far worse. And they're looking at, you know, what governments have done in the past to basically allow people to, to carry on building without this permission and sort of building extensions and building huge buildings on, on slopes that, that can't really support them. Mm. Now, earlier in the show, we were talking to Scott Lucas about the power of celebrity and how that translates into politics. And of course, last night saw the final of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here with the UK's former health minister, Matt Hancock, coming third. Do you think that this is the end of his political career? Um, I think, yes, it's interesting. So we're talking about celebrities going into politics. This is about politicians trying to go into the world of celebrity. Uh, and on some of the other papers, we haven't got here the sort of tabloid papers. They're taking different views. You'll basically see lots of pictures of Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, with a large toad sitting on his head. Um, and he came third in the competition. Uh, so he did quite well. But, you know, whether this was because people wanted to see him eating, you know, sort of horrible pieces of, of animal, uh, which was possibly it. But his political career is in huge danger, as most of the, the many of the papers are pointing out, because he went off uh, to Australia. He's paid a large amount of money to do it. He should have been arguably at home in Westminster doing the job that he is paid for to do um, for the voters and the constituents of West Suffolk. He's lost the Conservative whip as a result of that. And that could mean that he's deselected. Now, so many of the papers pointing out today um, that the danger is because he hasn't got the Conservative to whip back, he will have to say whether he wants to stand again for election by sort of this time next week, pretty much. Uh, if he hasn't got the whip back as a Conservative, his uh, constituency party in West Suffolk are quite likely to say, well, you know, you're not going to be our candidate at the next election. Now, whether that's what he wants, whether he thinks he can make um, a TV career or sort of career in the public eye some other way, which is what many of uh, the papers are suggesting today, uh, we don't know. But, you know, again, a lot of people who... Uh, were sort of victims of the pandemic, people who lost relatives are saying, you know, what he said on TV, he wanted to have forgiveness. But, you know, is that really the way to do it? Perhaps he should go and, you know, talk to the relatives, the victims, go to the inquiry, which is going to happen in a, in a while, and, and, and seek it that way rather than by sort of eating, eating bugs in the jungle. Absolutely, which, of course, as you say, comes with a huge paycheck. Terry, thank you very much indeed. That was Terry Stiastany. And this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Time now to talk transport with Monocle's transport correspondent, Gabriel Lee. Good morning to you, Gabriel. Good morning. Uh, Now, Boeing has delivered the second to last 747. Uh, Tell us more about this. 
Right, nearly the end of an era. Uh, we've known for some time that the 747 production would stop. Of course, this is the the real game-changing aircraft that Boeing came out with in the in the 1960s. So we've, we're talking about five decades of production uh, that's sort of wrapping up now. At this point, it's only going to cargo operators. It's still very popular among cargo operators. Most passenger 747s have been retired. So Atlas Air has taken the second-to-last uh, 747 cargo freighter, uh, and they'll take the final one, it looks like, early next year, which will sort of bring to a close the 747 production. Line. So a big kind of symbolic moment. But why is it closing, though? Uh, it just wasn't viable. Basically, they couldn't sell enough. You know, that's what it came down to, even though it, the, the 747 is much loved uh, in the industry. And also, I think, by passengers, it, it, talked, it, it, it evokes that romance of travel, you know, the jet age. Uh, nowadays, it's not really competitive with newer planes that, that can fly with just two engines instead of four, uh, more fuel efficient, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just not, uh, yeah, they just couldn't sell them anymore. Mm. Now, there's an intriguing new flight, and that is London to Neon Bay. Where is Neon Bay? Right. Neon Bay is in the northwest of Saudi Arabia, and uh, some may have heard about it, maybe not the place itself, the name, but but this uh, new city that Saudi Arabia is planning to build, uh, basically a, a, a huge 170-kilometer-long line of a city encased in glass, which is sort of this crazy notion that everyone's struggling to wrap their heads around who hear about it. Uh, but while that's sort of being planned and sort of the, the beginning constructions in this area, uh, the part of this massive, ambitious develop, development plan by Saudi Arabia, uh, they've actually started international flights. So you can fly from London now to Nyan Bay once a week, starting uh, next week, December 7th, Saudi uh, the national airline is operating it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a construction site at the moment, I guess. But presumably people need to get there to sort of work on the project. So kind of a fascinating new flight, uh, very unlikely, uh, you know, if you think about it. Absolutely. Uh, let's have a look at rail now, because competition and lower prices on European high-speed rail got a boost late last week. Right. So Spain now has a, a new operator of high-speed uh, services, and it's actually a, a majority stakeholder is, uh, is, is Trenitalia, so the Italian operator. Um, and uh, basically, it's part of this sort of process to liberalize services in, in Spain. They, they have Renfe, the, the national, the government-operated rail service. Uh, they also have Wigo, which is a, a French company, the Spanish subsidiary of a French company, and now this new Erio train service. So, you know, it promises to sort of uh, do all the things that competition should do, lower prices, uh, create, you know, better schedule options, that kind of thing. So it's good news for sort of seeing seeing passenger rail service, high-speed rail service liberalized in Europe more and more. Absolutely. Uh, and finally, let's, uh, let's have a look at this story about Deutsche Bahn and, the, uh, and Egypt's future high-speed rail, high rail network. Right. Deutsche Bahn have, have landed a, uh, quite, a, quite an interesting contract to essentially operate uh, Egypt's not-yet-built uh, high-speed rail network. So the first trains, I believe, are, are planned for 2025 there, and they've basically brought on Deutsche Bahn, you know, counting on all its experience, many years operating high speed in Germany and, and elsewhere uh, to, to sort of handle that for them, to operate, to, to, to be the sort of uh, the wisdom behind the, the system as they try to build this up. So, Does Egypt have a, a big sort of tradition of, of high speed rail? Not at all. No, this will be a big, a big new step for them to have high-speed rail. Uh, they don't have a single high-speed rail line at the moment. Um, they're starting in the north of the country, and they have plans to build something around 2,000 kilometers of track right down to uh, toward the south, past Luxor, past Aswan. Uh, you know, all based out of Cairo, obviously. But uh, it should be a, a huge boost for them in terms of transport infrastructure, and and one that many, many might not have seen coming. You know, this is sort of a new thing that we we saw Morocco build a high-speed rail line recently. So this sort of movement towards high-speed rail beyond just the sort of old cores of Europe and Japan and a few others in Asia. You know, it's nice to see. Uh, and I'm 
wondering, there must be particularly kind of unique operating challenges uh, taking high-speed rail through a desert. No doubt there would be. And I don't really know too much about them, but it would be fascinating to sit in on one of these planning meetings trying to figure out how to how to operate especially through the desert and also in quite remote territory you know uh, heading especially heading further south or further northwest out of, out of cairo it must be very interesting trying to figure out those uh, those challenges gabriel thank you very much indeed that's gabriel lee and you are with the globalist on monocle 24 Finally on today's show, from White Lotus to the real Inspector Hound, whodunits are all the rage. But now the world's longest-running play, the murder mystery show The Mousetrap, is set to open on Broadway for the first time next year. Theatre critic Matt Wolfe joins me in the studio. Matt, tell us a little bit of the history of the world's longest-running play by Agatha Christie. Yes, well, it's sort of a surprise that this is the world's longest-running play. Uh, Agatha Christie herself didn't think it was her best play. Uh, She preferred Witness for the Prosecution, which opened the next year in London, 1953. But for whatever reason, The Mousetrap uh, has, has long ago entered record books. Uh, 10 million people have seen it in London. Uh, it's close to 30,000 performances. I mean, it is staggering. What's interesting about it in London is that I think a lot of people don't really even regard it as a play. You don't go to it the way you might go to a Shakespeare or Chekhov or even a musical. It's, it's like ticking off a tourist essential, like the crown jewels or, you know, something like that, the Elgin marbles and the mousetrap. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, it has never before been on Broadway. It was prevented from doing so. Why was that? It, it's been off-Broadway in 1960, I think it was, for about five or six months uh, to no particular effect. I think the feel was that, in a sense, what the preserve of it in London was what made it remarkable, that if you wanted to see it, you had to come here. It it has done UK tours, but by and large, it hasn't been cloned. And that's what's interesting about this is it's an attempt to clone a London hit for a, a, a Broadway kind of replica success. But there are lots of odd things about it, Georgina, and not least the fact that plays on Broadway don't run for years and years and years. I don't mean 70 years. I mean even two or three mm. years. The whole sort of long-running mentality for plays in New York isn't at all like it is in uh, London. So it's got a lot working against it. And also Broadway is so much more expensive. The tickets are more expensive. The production costs are more expensive. So you need stars. But the thing about the mousetrap has always been that the play and the title are the stars. You don't go to see it to see, you know, somebody you recognize mm. in it. You you go to see the play, which is why I think for a long time it's been not especially uh, rewarding for some of the actors who've been in it recently because they never get reviewed. They don't get much comment, but they do get, you know, a paycheck, which is something. Mm. But Even I, I auditioned for it once. Did you? Well, I'd love to have seen you. <laughs> uh, you, you maybe you can take it to Broadway. But um, I think it, it it's a risky bet for New York. Having said that, there does seem to be an appetite now for the whodunit, as you've said, 
in other media. So maybe they're feeling, well, they can roll some of that back into uh, the theatre and see what happens. But I mean, it's interesting, as you say, that plays don't tend to have a long no. run on Broadway. And that's because the people who are going to go and see a play see it. That's right. And then they want the next thing. That's right. Uh, and uh, the, the tourists that would see The Mousetrap are probably coming from America in the first place. Yeah, and it's not like musicals where, you know, musicals have obsessive followers who will go to see Wicked or the Lion King or whatever 20 or 30 times. I can't quite see The Mousetrap having that sort of fanatical devotion, although I'm sure uh, across 70 years, maybe somebody has seen it 30 times. I've actually seen it three times. But um, I think it'll be a real test as to whether there's an appetite in New York for a style of theatre which is willfully old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. The thing about The Mousetrap, which is fascinating, is they make no concession to the passage of time. You set foot inside the theatre, you are in 1952. It's as close as you can get in theatre land to kind of going back to, you know, back to the future, except back to the back. And uh, New York, I think, wants something hipper, edgier, more modern. So I'm wondering if for New York they might tweak it, if they might sort of pastiche it, but then you're not doing the mousetrap. No, how interesting, and how interesting that the producers and, and Christie's heirs have finally allowed it. This um, this conversation about whodunits and why we like them, I mean, is that because we're all craving a neat resolution? Exactly so. I think uh, these are very tidy. At the end of the evening, you are told the murderer or the killer was X, and then you gasp or not. And it's quite sweet at the mousetrap. They go to all sorts of attempts don't give away who did it and all of that. So you, you were sort of sworn to secrecy. You enter a club and it's amazing how many people go to see it now who have no idea who did it. You would have thought after 70 years, somebody might have let slip that the, the ex did it, but, but no. Uh, <laughs> but actually, I, I've forgotten who did it. Well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm certainly not going to say on air. But I think there is a, a sense that as the world gets more chaotic and disordered, at least this has some sort of neat resolution which sends you on your way going, well, or was seen to be achieved. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just theatre, is it? It is things like The White Lotus, for instance, fantastically yeah. popular. Yeah. But that's the thing you see. Uh, the last successful Who Done It on Broadway commercially, I think, was Ira Levin's Death Trap, which was many decades ago. Uh, and that sort of play, because of Rising Costs New York, has been superseded by celluloid, by film and TV, where people aren't spending $150, $200. That will be the, the literally million-dollar question, is whether Broadway patrons want to part with Broadway ticket prices to see something that they're getting an equivalent of uh, on screen for much, much less money. What's the novelty value, especially when they can fly across the Atlantic and see it for, you know, 20 to 30 pounds on the West End? Yeah. And and just finally, before we go, I mean, I wonder really if theatre, Broadway, the West End is seeing this knock-on effect from COVID. Are people going back out there or are we just on our sofas now? Uh, Well, certainly. (laughs) I was in London theatre land, as they call it, on Saturday night and I could barely move on St. Martin's Lane. I I didn't know what was going on, although I think that was largely Black Friday. Uh, I get the feeling here that people are definitely going back. New York has been more reluctant. Uh, New Yorkers in general have been warier. The theatre district has gone through a bit of a tough patch in terms of crime and all. So it's slower there. Maybe this will be part of its reboot. That will be the real whodunit. Will they go it? <laughs> Absolutely. Matt, before you go, what should we see this week? 
Well, I'm a great fan of David Tennant in Good uh, at the uh, Harold Pinter Theatre. Remarkable performance and remarkable play. They've just extended it a couple of days. Uh, there's a very interesting, wild new production of Henry V that uh, Sam Wanamaker Shakespeare's Globe. Really dark, depressing. If you thought that was a jingoistic play, where do you see this production? Well, thank you, Matt. That's Matt Wolfe, theatre critic at the International New York Times. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer and Emma So, and to our studio manager, Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be with you for the Continental Shift, bringing you lots of great tunes and some sharp programming. And then the briefing is live at midday in London, and the Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>